Good morning. We are continuing with our series from the book of Daniel. It's a brand new series that Nancy brilliantly introduced last week. If you recall, Nancy told us that the book is divided into two sections. There's a narrative section and there's a prophetic section. This morning we're in chapter one, and that's a narrative section. It's a section that deserves to be read. It's meant to be read out loud and to be listened to. Nancy read last week chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. This morning I'm going to read, we're going to read chapter 1, verse 3 to 21 and complete chapter 1. I've asked my son Panache to help me out with the reading of these verses. There is quite a number of them. There are tricky names in, 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 in this section of the Bible. So please bear with him as he reads. But the task is to listen tentatively and to follow the story. But there's a lot to be gleaned from the story. Panache, please can come and assist me and read Daniel chapter 1, verse 3 to the end. Then the king ordered Ashton, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without physical defect, handsome, showing appetite for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these, some of the Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Meshel and Azariah, the chief officer gave them new names. To Daniel, the, na- the name ba- Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Meshiel, Meshach, and to the Azrael, Adbenedegu. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself in the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the king, who has afraid, who has assigned your food and drink. Why shouldn't he see you looking worse than the young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chef official who uh, had appointed over Daniel, Hadaniah, Mishael, and Azariel. Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. After the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any other of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice of food and and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave them knowledge to understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time, set by king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar, 
The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Meshel, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service in every matter of wisdom and understanding and about which is the king's questioned them. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first king of Sarius. Thank you, Panash. Well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, chapter 1 is really a prologue to the book. So there are things that are set in this chapter for the rest of the book. And you do well to note certain things from chapter 1, the chapter that we've just read. You can note that there is a God with capital G in chapter 1. But there's also a God with a small g, a small g God in chapter 1. There's a capital K king, but somewhere hidden in that chapter is, uh, in, is, a, is a capital K king, but there's also a small letter king in the chapter. You also note that there is trouble for the people of God in this chapter. And God is working in and through his people behind the scene. He's orchestrating all history. These are themes that you will see again and again in the chapters of Daniel. But this morning, I wanted to do something with the verses we've read. I wanted us to focus and zoom in to three aspects of this chapter. The first one I've called the grimness of the situation. Then number two, the response of the righteous. And number three, the faithful presence of a God who never abandons his people. I will then close by thinking on the relevance of these things that we are reading in chapter one into, in our lives today. So let's go. The grimness of the situation. Verse 1, Jerusalem falls. We read that last week. Verse 2, articles from the God's temple are taken and placed into an idol's temple. These are grim, grim, grim things. If you are a covenant person, this is heartbreaking. This is unimaginable. This is not understandable at all. The situation is grim. We have read this morning, verse 4, verse 3 and 4, the nobles of Judah are enslaved. The people we look up to as our future are taken captive and they are serving a foreign king. The holy land of Israel is defiled, really, because the Israelites are taken out of the holy land into a foreign land to be trained into the cultures and doings and ways of Babylon. That's verse 5. This is grim. This is unimaginable. Verse 6, 7 and 7, the, the respectable are given new names. To name a person is to be a father to them. To name a person is to adopt them. To name a person is to influence everything about their lives. And this, the hope of Israel, is being named by a foreign king. To really get the grimness of the situation, I challenge you to read Psalm 137. Psalm 137 is one of the darkest psalms there is in the Bible. You read it and you are perplexed. How can God allow such a vile psalm to be in the Holy Scriptures? The very last verse 
of that Psalm 137 ends with the people of God wishing God would raise a people who will take the enemy's babies and dash those heads against rocks. It's grim. There's no person with descent who doesn't cringe at reading Psalm 137. But at the beginning of that psalm, the scene is set. It says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and they were being taken into captive, asked to sing a song. We could not do this because we're going into a foreign land. And they wished terrible things to happen to put doing this because they were in so much anguish. I want you to get it. Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego are in a grim, grim situation. So hopefully I've done justice to that, that you can at least understand where they are in, that their situation was unimaginably difficult. The second thing is the response of the righteous. It appears, as Nancy said, that God has been defeated. His king has, has been uh, taken captive. His own utensils of his temple have been planted. His temple has been planted, and his, the utensils of his temple have been taken into uh, the temple of an idol god. Yet, despite him either having abandoned his people or, or, or having been defeated by a foreign god, their people will remain faithful to him. Verse 8, we read, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself. He was in Babylon, for goodness sake, for crying out loud, he was in Babylon. Babylon is a place synonymous with being defiled. It doesn't get any worse for anybody in those times than to be in Babylon. In fact, the word that has been used for Babylon in the scriptures is the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 12 or chapter 10, 11, where Babylon was again a center of human pride. So how can you be clean in this, in this environment? How can you even try to be clean in this environment? What was so defiling Daniel about the king's meat and wine? Some people say, well, it was because the Levitical priests ordained certain things about certain foods not to be eaten, animal products. Well, wine is not an animal product. So it can't be that. Some people say, well, the food will have been offered to idols, so to eat them will be defiling. But well, the vegetables too would have been offered to idols. So it can't be that. So what is it? I read Daniel chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. Daniel himself records that he was in mourning. And because he was in mourning, he could not eat the choice foods, meat and wine. So I think here what's going on is Daniel is in mourning. Remember that Psalm 137 that they wrote when they were by the rivers of Babylon. He is so much in anguish. He considers defiling to be seen, to be celebrating under these circumstances and situation. Others still say, well, the nourishment for the wise people was coming from the king's table. By refusing the choice foods of the king and eating fruits and vegetables, which was peas and food really, Daniel is making a statement, my nourishment comes from the God of Israel. The God who seems to, to have been defeated is the source of my nourishment. So Daniel and his friends 
remain faithful to this God in this dark, dark, dark situation they find themselves in. Number three then, the faithful presence of a God who never abandons his people. Three times in this chapter, we hear God gave. The very first time Nancy spoke about last week was in verse 2, where God gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory. What sort of a God does that? Why would God do this to his own people? Well, there's no answer in this chapter. And sometimes we don't really know why God does what he does. But what it does show is that even in this grim situation, God is still orchestrating history. He's still involved. He's still influencing the course of life. He gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory. Verse 9 tells us God gave Daniel favor in the, in the official's eyes. So whatever Daniel achieves, there is a God who is the undercurrent of his achievement. There is, a, there is a wave on which Daniel is gliding, and that wave is the favor of, of his God. Behind the scenes, God is influencing what happens to his people. Verse 17, we also hear that God gave knowledge and understanding to Daniel, Meshach, and Abednego. And to Daniel, you also gave the ability to understand dreams and visions. And Daniel became a legend, really, that's all we're reading about him. And his becoming a legend is based on the favor that God has given him. It's not because he was wise, it was because God gave understanding. So, whatever is happening in the life of Daniel and his friends, God is doing something phenomenal, wonderful, and brilliant at the same time. At this level, things are grim. At that level, God is in charge. Isn't that amazing? The two appear not to be easy to marry, but something deep is wonderful. Then verse 1, which is the beginning of the chapter, of the, of, of the writing, and verse 21, the closing of the chapter, we hear Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1, in verse 1, and we hear Cyrus in verse 12. Daniel still stands between Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus. Guys, I tell you, no matter how grim the situation is, maybe Nebuchadnezzar is winning right now, but there is a Cyrus who is coming. If you know the history of these people well, Nebuchadnezzar was the orchestrator of defeat, but Cyrus was the orchestrator of the rebuilding of the temple and the Holy Land. So yes, things are not, are not well, but things are not going to end this way. There is a God who is working throughout history. Bad at the beginning, but there at the end when things become all good. Hallelujah. Praise this God. It is impossible though, if we are honest, like Nancy said last week, to fully understand this God. His ways are not our ways. In fact, one of the scriptures say, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high is the gulf between his ways and our ways. And as far as the east is from the west, so wide is the difference between his thoughts and our thoughts. So in some ways, this God cannot be understood fully. But he can be loved. He can be known. And we are called not to understand him that much, but to know his presence and to love him regardless. So those are the three aspects that I want us to really zoom in in this verse that we've read. 
But then I ask the question, so what? And I say, well, our situation is grim. We are in a global pandemic, and as humanity, we have found ourselves taken to Babylon. We have been captured by Nebuchadnezzar. Everything that we have wished for and hopeful for life has been disappointed in the past year or so. Well, I lost my mom uh, unexpectedly after 10 days of illness with COVID-19. She was in Zimbabwe. I could not say goodbye to her. I remember sending a text one afternoon and it was never read and never responded to. It was the last communication that I sent directly to her. I could not say goodbye. I could not properly mourn her. I couldn't even pay my respects the way I wanted to, as I could not be there at her burial. There are things that happened in the 10 days of illness that still haunt me. Decisions that I had to make, uh, considerations that I had to think about, and whether if I acted differently, whether it could be a different outcome. It's, it hurts even today. I don't feel I've fully recovered even yet. It is, we're living in a grim, grim, grim situation. I'm not the only one, though. I heard on Channel 4 a man who in one week lost his wife and both his sons. These are grim times. Many people have lost their jobs and their livelihoods. We are living in grim times. I've just heard that one in four children now experience mental health problems. These are difficult, dark, dark times. And just this week we've heard over 100,000 people have lost their lives to this pandemic. These are dark times. In some ways, we are like these four men of Israel, finding ourselves in a foreign land, having lost any, everything. And what we learn from them is that it's okay to grieve. It's okay to say this life sucks, that this is not supposed to be the way it is. 137 Psalm is in the Holy Scriptures where people were in so much anguish, they said things that we find revolting. It's okay to feel that pain. These are grim times. But because they are grim times, we've got a lot to learn from Daniel and his friends. There are people who have walked this path before and they had different outcomes. We can learn from them. So what can we learn? What can we learn from, from, the, from, 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 from them? They chose faithfulness to a God who could not be seen. They chose faithfulness to a God who appeared to, be, to have abandoned them. They chose faithfulness to a God who appeared to have been defeated. Whether you understand the reason for the pandemic or not, our children's future have been robbed, their education disrupted. Whether that makes sense to us or not, there is a God, folks, behind the scenes who can be trusted, who can be relied upon. In fact, about 2,000 years ago, this very God appeared to die on a cross. That was God defeated through and through. Squarely defeated. Killed by his enemies. 
yet there was a resurrection. There is a Cyrus that comes at the end of the chapter. We can dare hope, folks. I don't know. Do you know this unseen God? Do you experience his presence? Can you see his hand at work in this grim situation we are in? In these dark times, do you take comfort and hope from the work of the cross? Well, if you don't, I challenge you. What have you got to lose? People like Daniel tells us this is another way of managing grimness and dark situations in life. What have you got to lose by learning to trust him? We are living in grim times, aren't we? God bless you.